0: Hi everyone, this is Miles from Mailjet again and welcome to our mini podcast series GDPR Beyond Borders where we hear from experts and practitioners about how American businesses in particular can prepare for and stay compliant under GDPR. This episode features a panel of experts discussing the risk behind GDPR. The panel will explore the reasons behind the current GDPR frenzy, The difference this law presents in contrast to privacy laws in other parts of the world and explains the rationale behind GDPR and what companies need to be thinking about as they finalize their GDPR compliance plans. This is not only a great primer for GDPR, but it also sets the stage for how it will become the standard for global data privacy in general we'll go now to Pierre Nicholas Schwab who was our keynote in the last episode and is actually our panel's moderator this time around and he will kick things off now thank you so much again for listening very exciting section
1: uh, interesting also a uh, question that we may want to uh, deepen during uh, our discussion uh, may I kindly ask you uh, for Susan to uh, introduce yourself uh, give a little bit of background about who you are uh, what is your experience and then I will hand over to you andise
2: Sure, so I'm Susan Wiseman, I'm General Counsel of Braze. Um, So we have been on a GDPR compliance journey, I could also call it a GDPR compliance nightmare, um, for the last year or so. Um, And so we're really excited to share today some of our experiences in the process of becoming GDPR compliant. Hi,
3: hi everyone, good morning, I'm Antonis Patrikios, I'm a partner at the previous security and information law group at Phil Fisher and head the firm's cybersecurity practice. For those of you who have not heard us, we're a fairly big practice advising clients around the world with GDPR and other matters, including in particular a lot of US companies. So hopefully I'll be able to share some of the insights we've gained through doing this
2: including us so Antonis has been a wonderful partner for us in our GDPR compliance efforts. I, ho- I hope
3: I wasn't the reason why you <laughs> described it as a nightmare <laughs>
1: so I was pretty surprised when Judy asked um, um, When starting the conference that uh, so many people were actually already uh, preparing uh, for uh, GDPR I remember uh, a few months ago, uh, we had the same discussion in, uh, in Europe with the Commission, and the Commission told me then uh, that minority of companies at, uh, started with GDPR preparation, uh, so less than 50% uh, like six months ago. Uh, so why is it important? Why are um, all these people in the room today? Uh, why do they need uh, to comply with GDPR? Uh, What are the different implications for marketers, for uh, IT guys, for lawyers? Could you explain uh, it a little bit, uh, Susan, please?
2: Sure, I I think um, certainly from our perspective, um, we felt that from a commercial perspective as a company, that if we were not GDPR compliant on or before May of 2018, um, all business could come to a screeching halt. We felt that even though um, we're not located in Europe, we felt that our customers who are global in their reach would very much care about whether or not we were able to um, convince them of the fact that we had taken GDPR seriously and were prepared to enable them when they used us to be compliant with their GDPR requirements. Um, I think that everyone who's in this room cares about it because for Americans, I think it's a real um, a, a difference between how we have viewed our obligations as service providers um, in terms of how we process and control data, how we respond to requirements with respect to privacy rights. And I just think it's been a fundamental change in how companies in the U.S. approach privacy. Um, and, and so for us, I think, you know, speaking as US companies, I think it's scary when you think about the kinds of fines that are out there and no one wants to be the company that gets hit with those fines.
1: Antonis, can we do business
3: without complying with GDPR? Uh, yes, if you w- have nothing to do with the European market or with data. Is there anyone in this room who has nothing to do with the European market or data? Probably not. Look, to me, there's, uh, obviously Susan explained the, the specific reasons that Bray's cared passionately about this, and I've, I've made it part of my mission statement to make you all EU privacy enthusiasts. At some point, it's, it's a bit of a tall order. But for, for me, there's basically two reasons why everyone should care about the GDPR. Number one is the obvious. It's the law in Europe, and it has extraterritorial effect which means that it would capture most of you, certainly if you're providing services to EU individuals. It's the law, there's very significant sanctions for getting it wrong. We've all heard about the massive fines. Pierre Nicolas mentioned the power of EU regulators to require you to stop unlawful processing. And then there's some fairly significant consequences that perhaps have gone slightly unnoticed because 20 20, uh, million euro, 4% of worldwide turnover is such a um, headline uh, uh, item. But regulators also have powers to audit uh, companies. And we think these these are rights that are going to be exercised. So for the first time in Europe, at least across Europe, you have the potential of regulators just showing up at your doorstep one day, saying, "Hi, I'd like to check everything now, please." Do you
2: think that they will be? Show, do you think that they would show up in U.S. companies, or do you think that the regulators will stay on the continent? Just out of curiosity, that's an,
3: that's an excellent question. Um, you have to remember what EU regulators are. They're typically very professional, but fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective under-resourced and under-funded. And as EU regulators, they have a duty to prioritize what they're going to go after. There hasn't been a single instance of EU regulators spot-checking companies in America. There was one instance several years ago where Italian regulators threatened to go to Silicon Valley and audit Google. I don't think that ever happened. But to go back, and that's an excellent question. It links to the question that the gentleman had earlier about the real risk of being enforced against if at least you don't have a physical presence in Europe. There's another potential, which I think uh, US uh, citizens, especially lawyers, will understand. For the first time in Europe, the GDPR sets up the elements of what looks very much like a US class action regime. So in addition to the fines, in addition to the enforcement actions, in addition to the audits, we have for the first time in Europe the ability of someone, it could be an individual or a smart lawyer or a consumer organization to bring claims on behalf of aggrieved individuals. And there's a lot of other things that are worrying in that respect which I won't bother you with this now. So that was the first reason. It's the law and you have to do it or else EU regulators may may be small dogs but they have very big sticks now. The second reason is that, well frankly, If you want, you know, it's the data age. We all deal in data. And if you want to do business in Europe, GDPR is the law that sets the framework of what you can and cannot do. So over and above legal compliance, it is what would set the broad parameters of what you can do as a business. And in that respect, I think, no one can afford ignoring the law. If
1: if I may comment on that.
3: so you're right on the
1: controls Uh, don't forget that controls have already started so controls in france for instance and in germany have already started so the authorities are already uh, going into uh, businesses to see how data are are being collected and our data are being uh, treated now on the um on the threat side i think or would you agree with me that uh, it's also an opportunity GDPR is an opportunity because European citizens are more and more uh, data conscious, so they care about their data. Uh, you just have to uh, look about the, the polls in, in Germany, for instance, or in uh, the Netherlands. And those of you who uh, do business with Europe and don't care about data uh, are wrong, because citizens of the different European countries will then uh, see you as bad partners rather than good partners and will just uh, change or stop using your uh, your services. As I said, I know already two companies that are almost bankrupt because they are not and European companies because they are not uh, complying with GDPR and no one wants to do business with them uh, anymore. So I think that's the, also a, a very big uh, threat. But that being said, how does it differ from other uh, privacy, privacy laws like uh, Privacy uh, Shield, for instance.
2: So, I mean, I think the scope of GDPR is so much broader than anything else out there. Um, I mean, from our perspective, I think there's much more of a concern in the past or into the current framework, which is the directive. Um, U.S. companies will comply with it because they're contractually obligated to do so by the European companies that they work with. Under GDPR, it's a direct obligation of the US companies who are collecting data of European data subjects. But what I think is really interesting about GDPR and one of the things that um, my experience has been is that when I've spoken, um, we spoke in London last summer on GDPR and we were in a room full of marketers and advertisers and pretty much everyone there knew about it and when I asked people how do you feel personally about having control over your data and pretty much everyone in the room felt very you know, strongly that this was a great thing for them to be able to have control over their data to know who was collecting it and what they were doing with it. But when I asked them as marketers or advertisers, what did they think about GDPR? I think the answer was the opposite. People didn't like the idea. And and I think that calls out one of the big issues right now with GDPR is that as, as Pierre has alluded to, Right now, you can you know, do one Google search on cars, and then anywhere you go on the internet, if you go onto social media or, media or anyplace else, you get all of these ads on cars. And so you know that your data is being collected and used, and you don't know how it's being used. I think for Americans, that's much less of a, of a concern um, than for Europeans who I think view GDPR, or view privacy rights as a fundamental right. And so I think that that really calls out a distinction, and one of the reasons American companies are having a harder time with this, because I think for them, privacy rights and this control over data is less of a driving force than it is in Europe. Um,
1: Before I I give you uh, the the floor, just to comment on that, so, in my role uh, at RTBF, I am required by law to uh, answer citizens' questions uh, on live TV once a month. So, if you want to see me on TV, that's, that will be on Monday. <laughs> and one, uh, one question that comes over and over is the question on uh, retargeting. So, that's something that not all of us are, are doing. That's, uh, that's a common practice, but that annoys so much. Uh, people and that makes data collection so visible that people are really getting sensitive uh, about that. And uh, to close the the topic, what you also must know is that in many uh, European countries, for instance in Germany, uh, there are educational uh, programs uh, funded by the states to educate children and people on data collection practices. We are also doing that too in Belgium and at the uh, EBU, European Broadcasting Union, uh, level from 2018 because we want people to be conscious about uh, data uh, that is being collected, how the data is being uh, treated, and you must expect that uh, that consciousness uh, level will grow with time. So if you
3: do not comply, you're just dead. Your viewpoint? I, I, I think... Think that's uh, absolutely right, and and you raise a very interesting point, which is, leave leave the law aside for a moment, right? So what we're seeing in Europe, in very very clearly, is that people's percep- perceptions and understanding around privacy is changing, and people do generally care about their privacy, and then we have these mega security breaches that sort of tend to reinforce that message on people's mind. So that's Europe for now and there's very specific legal, cultural, historical reasons why we care so much about privacy. But Europe is a very big market and what happens in Europe has impacts elsewhere in the world. And I think one of the consequences of the GDPR in the medium to longer term that we're going to see is twofold, number one, it will influence legal regimes in other parts of the world, perhaps not in the United States of America, but think Asia Pacific, for example. They tend to take the lead from Europe. Second and most crucially, I think that perception that's changing in Europe, as far as how individuals think about privacy, will have knock-on effects in other parts of the world, and people will start caring about their privacy more in other parts of the world. Just to highlight an example, of how this plays out now with companies with whom we're working on GDPR readiness, right? Think of your HR data, think of your customer data. GDPR says in the EU you have to give people all these rights, all this choice, all this transparency, great. You don't have to do it in the United States of America. But you, as a business, are you prepared to explain to your US employees or US customers Why are you giving all this choice to EU consumers, but you don't give it to the US people? How how do you justify that? And some clients say, well, pretty straightforward. I have a legal obligation here, don't have it over there, so I'm just going to do what the law says. But others are thinking about it from a customer engagement and PR perspective, and are just concluding, well, I can't really justify it. So if I give all that choice to my EU customers, I'll also give it to my U.S. customers because that's what they expect me to do. So it has already impact in changing the culture over and above what the law requires.
2: You know, what's interesting is um, complying with GDPR requires that you are protecting and giving all these rights to data subjects who are EU citizens. But how do you know someone is an EU citizen? So there may be someone in my office who is... American, but actually his parents are both Irish and he was born in Ireland, but he's been raised in America We don't know who is a European citizen. So from at Bray's we are treating everyone Every data every piece of information we collect we're treating everyone as an EU data subject Because we don't want to make that mistake inadvertently that we haven't protected the rights of an EU citizen So we just have gone to the far end of that and said that we're going to comply with respect to everything we do everywhere in the world, with every person whose data we're collecting. And that's kind of how we've approached that. And
1: I must say, well, two years ago, well, because as a chairman, I uh, have the privilege to observe practices in uh, more than 50 countries. And two years ago, when uh, we first heard about uh, GDPR, I thought that the practices uh, that will develop will be more like, you know, like in, in the U.K., where uh, people just like in the U.S. are not so data conscious and, well, the U.K. has always been in advance in terms of how much data they collect and what they do with it. And it's quite a reverse that has happened. Uh, it's actually uh, Germans and French that are now uh, paving the way for more consciousness, and uh, all other countries are uh, just following. Um, so uh, that, that I think that's a very uh, important trend. To consider that ethics uh, in doing business and having common grounds about how you treat data, whatever data it is and whatever uh, the citizens come from, um, is uh, is very important.
2: We also think at Braze, and we, we began our GDPR compliance efforts long, long ago, like over a year ago, um, we took the view that if we want to be able to do business that we need to be GDPR compliant, and we think that there's a competitive advantage. We think that being able to tell our customers that yes, we take this seriously, we understand the obligations of GDPR, we have re-architected our systems, we are prepared to enable you to do this. We think that's really important and that companies in America need to take that perspective. I think um, Antonis probably has a broader view of this since he advises so many different types of companies across so many different fields. Yeah.
1: So you started two years ago, but for those who, are, uh, who have not yet started or are just uh, in, the, in the very uh, starting phase, what do you, Antonis, uh, think they should do uh, as a first uh, first step to be compliant in less than 100 days?
3: Start tomorrow morning. Um, so so if, if you have not started, um, Three things. Number one, there's no way you're going to be ready on time unless you're a very small company and you know all your systems are in order and you know exactly what you collect about home and when and what, where it goes and all that kind of thing. Second point, what you need to be doing now is start with your data mapping. So start, if you, if you don't know what data you have and where it goes and what you do with it, you don't know what data you collect, start now with mapping. And then what you need to do is put a, a plan in place for getting ready. Don't get bogged down on the, well, I'm not going to get ready by the 25th of May, so might as well start next year. Unless you uh, work for one of a small handful of very high profile internet companies, chances of EU regulators looking into your practices anytime soon, short of a very serious security breach, are very, very small. So what you need to be doing is get on with it, make sure you have a plan in place, work with your advisors to identify where are your real tricky issues, your difficult issues that might actually either impact your business or get you in serious trouble and have a remediation plan in place. Don't focus so much on getting ready on the 25th of May, focus on understanding what you need to do and fixing the tricky problems by then and then you can sort out the rest later. Like I can
1: give you one one insight from at least uh, three countries uh, where I've been in contact with. Um, the DPA there, uh, well, they think they will make some examples. So starting in May or in June, they will look for the big fishes and they will import some very important finds. And then most probably it will be quiet for like a year and it will start again uh, next year eh? because, well, investigations will uh, take time. And what you also should know is that DPAs so or data protection authorities in the different countries, are building up capacities. They have been understaffed for years, and they are recruiting massively people to investigate cases. Yeah? Uh, so if you are safe, let's say, uh, if you are not a big fish, you're probably safe uh, this year. But next year, well, they will have built up capacities, people will be uh, up and running and they will search in all directions to uh, find bad practices and stop them.
3: Yeah. Can I, can I just throw in uh, um, another sort of idea in here in terms of managing your regulatory risk management, uh, risk? Um, yes, they're, they're upskilling. There's very clear signs. They're recruiting. They're upskilling. They're cross-pollinating oh, <laughs> big, big time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But... The GDPR is a big pain on the back for business. It's perhaps an even bigger pain on the back for regulators because, as we said, they're understaffed. They, 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 they have to enforce and supervise and enforce this. And they have this beautiful baby called 72-hour bridge notification that's coming their way, and we expect they'll be overtaken by a tsunami of British notifications that they'll start receiving. So it's not as if they're going to have spare capacity and they would just sit there and say, what should we do tomorrow? Let's pay a visit to Braze. You know, it's just not going to happen that way. I, I would say if, if if you guys have ongoing challenges, let's say, with regulators in Europe, I'm pretty sure you will have started looking at your GDPR readiness already. If you do not have get on with it, as, as we said, the chances of someone paying you a visit is probably small, but there could always be that trigger that you do not control that might bring you to the attention of regulators. I've practising this area for 11 years, seen it time and time again. It takes one security breach or one person to go to one regulator and complain. It could be a complaint, it could be a rogue employee, it could be a disgruntled consumer, it could be whatever. And I've seen it time and time again where you have one tricky consumer, no grounds whatsoever, but because they've gone to the regulator, the client comes to us, pays lawyers fees to handle this properly, it can be tricky. So to go back to the first beginning, if you haven't started yet, have a chat with your advisors, see how exactly the GDPR affects you, and if it does affect, you get on with it and put a plan in place.
2: One of the things that that we haven't mentioned, which I think is worth noting, or, well, two things. One is that the people who wrote GDPR don't really understand technology. And certainly one thing that we have focused on a lot at Braze is that there are requirements under GDPR that technology just doesn't do. And so I think what we're seeing, certainly contractually, is people saying that you will comply with GDPR to the extent feasible. Because I think the other point I wanted to make is that how GDPR will be interpreted and and what a lot of these requirements actually mean in a day-to-day way is not really clear yet. So the authorities are coming out with these pronouncements where they're talking about you know, what do they really mean by consent? Who has to hire a DPO? And so they're trying to answer some of the questions that people have, but I think in terms of how GDPR is going to be enforced, um, what do they mean by certain of the provisions and are certain efforts that are being made actually sufficient to meet the requirements? I'm not sure that's clear yet. And I also think certainly for technology companies, you can only go so far because there are things that technology just can't do today. Um, And so that makes it very challenging. Um, And and that's one of the reasons, I think, going back before, is why are we so afraid of GDPR? And I think that's one of the reasons it's very hard for us to wrap our arms around all of the requirements um, under GDPR.
1: But I think it's actually good that they did not define everything. Let's talk about consent or let's talk about... Uh, data portability. I had uh, the opportunity to ask the EU Commission director what data portability means, and he said, "Well, uh, you have to define it yourself within your industry, so it was not defined." But I think that's an opportunity. If you, if something is not defined, then make it your way, in the best interest of the consumers. And I, I very much agree with you, Susan, when you say that it's an opportunity. It's not a threat. Yeah.
2: It's funny from that perspective that you say that it's an opportunity because I think of it as a big giant stick that if you get it wrong, you're subject to fines, you're subject to um, all of these penalties. And so from the perspective of an American company that's working very hard to be compliant, I think that the fact that things aren't clear makes compliance scarier, and I don't think it's a good thing. I think that that's a difficult thing, at least from the perspective of a company that wants to do it right, that's working very hard to
3: do it right. I I think that's absolutely right. So it's both actually. It's it's both a risk and an opportunity. A risk for the reasons that Susan explained. An opportunity for the reasons you explained. Let's not forget, not everything is bad in the GDPR. So we have some really interesting concepts in there. There's this idea of accountability, which, at a high level, basically means each company is responsible for setting out how exactly it will go about complying with the principles of the law. And that gives you quite some leeway, especially in gray areas. Say, well, in my case, I comply with the transparency requirements or the record keeping requirements, or whatever, in this way. And where the art is, right, and where your advisors, especially your legal advisors can help you, is to tell you where are these red lines that you absolutely cannot cross in determining how about you're going to comply, right? To give you an example of what I mean, thinking about the simplest of requirements, the GDPR says, as Nicola told us, you have to be transparent with people about what you do with the data, great. There are some things in there, and there is some regulatory guidance that's so prescriptive that basically says, oh, as part of complying with these requirements, you need to list each and every service provider that helps you with the data. For some of our global clients, that may mean 2,000 companies. It's, it's, it's a long list that simply getting it together and maintaining it is very difficult to achieve. So here's what I mean when I say you can actually be flexible as to how you're going to approach it. So long as fundamentally you're confident that what your privacy notice does is it very clearly explains to people, here's what data I collect about you, here's what I do with it, and here's what rights you have. And then, for a narrow technical requirement, such as listing all your service providers, you've been creative in the way in which you're going to comply. For example, you do not list everything in your privacy notice, which would be pointless. You provide a link to your website where you have a list that you update every now and then. So, and even if you don't manage to comply, you restrict your non compliance to a narrow technical point that's unlikely to land you a 4% of worldwide turnover fine. No, if, on the contrary, your intentions are wrong, and what your privacy notice does is it basically tries to pull the wool over the eyes of the consumer so you can do whatever you want with the data, that's definitely something that's likely to get you in serious trouble. Well,
1: If you have 2,000 suppliers of data-related services, it may be time to uh, well go through them and... Um Kind of uh, reach economies of scale and get rid of uh, of some of them. Yeah, that's why it's also an opportunity. Uh, is it time now for uh, question and answers? Yeah, it's time for question and answers. So thank you so much, uh, both Susan and Tony, for uh, uh, for your answers to my questions. And now we will take a few a uh, few questions from the crowd. The gentleman here on the first row.
4: Okay, good morning, I wanna say thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. Um, I'm Hector Munoz, coming from Boston, a GDPR consultant, and um, my question is, Taking consideration, and don't take me, these numbers are right, but according to the Gartner study report, I think about 60% of American companies are not ready for May the 25th. So what's gonna happen with the GDPR initiative? This is gonna be an ongoing process. It's gonna be more things coming up after 2018, uh, as a career, you know, we definitely would like to know. And this is gonna require for companies in America to be monitored on a yearly basis, just like we do the IRS, (laughs) the taxes, right? An example. So I think this is gonna be a lot of work coming up, and I think it's gonna require to monitor even though they're in compliance now, but what happens if they are not compliant next year?
2: Well, ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, I think one of the ri- one of the difficulties is if you want to hire a vendor and you want to check out their security, you can see do they have a SOC two or they ISO twenty seven oh one certified. But there really is no way to tell if a company in the U.S. is GDPR compliant, and um, that's one of the things that actually we're gonna go into some detail on later in the IT workshop. We do wanna talk about that in some detail, but I mean, I think that that is a challenge and I think that you can have conversations with companies and get a really good sense of, How are they viewing GDPR? What have they done to become compliant with GDPR? What are their practices? What are their policies? And I think you really do need to ask questions. I think that you know certainly Braze has a number of things on our website that show our GDPR roadmap, what we've done to we have an FAQ. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to show companies where we are in our GDPR compliance roadmap. And I think that that will become best practice. Um, that's certainly our intent is to show and be really transparent with companies, which is one of our, our values, is that we need people to know what we do and how we do it.
4: So it's not mandatory for companies to report on a yearly basis
3: where are they in terms of At the station, Attestation, no, it's not, it's not mandatory yet. It, it is something that may happen in the future, but not yet.
1: But that would be a good practice, I mean, to review on a yearly basis where you are, what you are doing with the data. Actually, if you are not doing it right now, that's already wrong.
2: Well, the whole concept of privacy by design, I mean, I think that either you are a company that has taken GDPR really seriously and at the highest levels of the company and throughout the company, you have excuse me, you've automated processes so that you can be GDPR compliant and that you can show, we certainly are at the point now where we have a number of companies and pro- customers and prospects who are doing a very deep dive into what we have done to be GDPR compliant. And so we feel that that will continue, that people are going to want to make sure that, <clears throat> that what you are doing with their data is what you're supposed to be doing under GDPR. And we think that people should be asking those questions and that the companies you work with should be able to answer those questions.
1: Thank you. We have a second question or a third question, so first.
0: We also have a question from the live stream. Um, yep. Are those early complaints, and this is for you, Pierre, are those early complaints, the two companies on the verge of bankruptcy, coming from individual consumers or B2B clients?
1: Oh, that's coming from B2B clients. Um, so the, the companies I am thinking about, and I, obviously I cannot uh, give their names, are data brokers, and they are not able to show to their clients, so retailers, uh, banks, insurers, how they collected consent And as a consequence, dues, retailers, banks, and insurers, they just say, well, we just want to be risk-free and we will uh, stop doing businesses with you because we do not want to be contaminated by your risks. So they just stop. And if you think about the example that I gave when starting the keynote yesterday, so when I took that coffee in Soho and I got uh, a commercial email, because I had to give my email address to get uh, the receive, I did not give consent. And yet, I got that email. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's unlawful.
2: Hi, my name's Matt. Um, question that came out of the keynote with respect to the principle of minimization, when you talk about at heart not collecting data you don't intend to use. I guess my question's in two parts. One, has there been any guidance around what usage means? So if you're effectively using it for internal business analytics and successful campaigns, is that sufficient? And second, how about the concept that you might be collecting data with a future purpose, and you have a bona fide intent to use it, but you're not actually using it at the time that it's being collected because you don't have a sufficient sample?
1: I can answer that Uh, question, but I would like
3: also to throw throw it to the lawyer. So um, two points one The good thing about the purpose limitation Principle and data minimization is it doesn't prescribe what you can and cannot do with data. So so long as you have a Valid legitimate business purpose to collect data you can do this Okay, so that gives you an amazing Degree of leeway as to what you can collect data for and yes internal business analytics clearly a legitimate purpose Making money clearly a legitimate business purpose, but it has to be legitimate It has to be a purpose that that you've established and communicated to the data subject and it has to be a purpose for which You're using the data now you can't collect data just in case you may need it in the future
1: and just saying that you will do something with the data in the future is not a legitimate purpose. It
3: wouldn't be, unless what we're talking about is I want to collect it now because in three months' time, this big data analytics project kicks off or whatever it may be. So it's, it's it's let's say, clear and present purpose that you will have. just hasn't started quite yet. But basically collecting data because you think you might move into an area and you might need it, that simply won't cut it in, in in terms of the data that will be caught by GDPR. And one very important thing
1: that Anthony said is you have to get consent. So you have to explain your uh, future purpose. So if you fail to explain that and if, if you fail to get the consent for uh, that purpose,
3: C- can, it's can I, can I just um, intervene here because I'm slightly concerned that we may be creating an impression that whatever you you need consent from people in order to collect any data from them and do anything with it. That's that's just not the case. Consent is one of many grounds provided by the GDPR on the basis of which you can process personal data. You don't always need consent for any data processing. There are some things such as marketing, for example, as Pierre said, where the law, interestingly, not the GDPR, we have another law in Europe and please, Make a note of that piece of legislation, because it's being revised and it's going to have far-reaching implications for marketing, online tracking uh, and other things, especially if you're a telco, called the e-privacy directive or e-privacy regulation, as we'll have soon, that basically says for certain things you need consent, such as marketing. So for those cases where the law says you can only do this on the basis of consent, then you have to obtain consent, But for most types of data processing, including analytics, for example, the law does not say you need consent. Absolutely true.
1: We have time for one more question, one last question here at the back.
0: Hi. um, Can you tell me how this uh, the the GDPR might relate to um, employee-specific data? So my company, we don't actually collect data from consumers. We sell it to a company that their employees then log in and only the employees of that company specifically use our software. So it, and so we, we store their email address. Is that considered personal data that has to be treated the same way as, yeah.
2: Are there employees that are European citizens?
0: Yes, yeah.
2: Yes, okay, so then GDPR does apply to that situation because you're collecting personal data. And under GDPR, the definition of personal data has been expanded tremendously. So under the current law, um, which was written over 20 years ago, how we were able to identify people was much more limited than how we can identify people today. And so the definition of personal data is so broad under GDPR. So if you are collecting, which you are, if you're making decisions about the data that you're going to collect, and usually most companies, when they're talking about an HR context, they are talking about themselves as data controllers, even if in another context, they could be a data processor. So GDPR does apply to your situation.
3: Yeah, it's a email address are clearly personal data. I mean, <coughs> just, just on the topic, things like unique device identifiers or IP addresses, personal data in Europe so very very broad that's clearly the case and then if I think what you're saying is you provide some form of SaaS solution and you have employees of your business customers logging on and as a result of that you require them to give you some data and probably may I add you also track what they do with your software so you can improve these activities would clearly bring you in scope as a controller as Susan said so you're caught then um, in the interest of giving practical advice that sort of positions you in a risk sense in the best possible way, is it just that that your company does, in which case we can restrict your GDPR compliance to that particular aspect, or as a result of de- doing that then, let's say, it's probably an unfortunate um, uh, uh, parallel to draw, but GDPR spreads and actually um, infects more of your organisation. In which case, you need to do more things.
1: So we will have to close here. Um, so just a quick uh, sum up, like in in two or three uh, sentences. So everyone is concerned by GDPR from the moment that uh, they collect data from uh, European citizens. Consent is very important, so uh, you have to get consent for a certain uh, range of of purposes, so not everything is covered. Uh, Maybe we can discuss this in the marketing uh, workshop uh, afterwards. Data breach notifications, we have uh, spoken uh, about. uh, And with that in mind, I propose that I hand over to uh, Julie. Thank you very much.
3: Well, thank
4: you very much for sharing with us your experiences.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much again for listening. As a reminder, we've released all four episodes at once. So move on to episode three now, where we discuss different approaches to achieving and maintaining GDPR compliance. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out mailjet.com slash GDPR for all of your GDPR questions, uh, specifically how it pertains to your email marketing campaigns. And uh, for now, we'll just see you in the next episode.